Well, our topic this evening, marriage, has been headline news this week. I'm sure all of us know that on Tuesday, Parliament passed the first reading of a bill by a very large majority to legalize gay marriage, to extend marriage to gay couples. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, has been at the forefront of this campaign, arguing, and I quote, I am a strong believer in marriage. It helps people to commit to each other, and I think it is right that gay people should be able to get married too. Now, what is ironical to me is that those who are already legally qualified to get married under current law, that is heterosexual couples, are rejecting marriage in increasing numbers. survey taken five years ago suggests that by 2014, the number of people under 40 years old who are cohabiting, that is living together, not married, will exceed those who are in married relationships. However, this trend is not limited to younger people. Uh, I looked at what I preached on last time, and let me give you the opening illustration again, because... Uh, I found it somewhere in a magazine called Bella Magazine, which is not top of my reading list. Uh, and uh, listen to the advice given by its counselor, Anne Level by name. She is described as always ready to listen, advise, and comfort. And the piece she's replied to is entitled, He Says Marriage Would Spoil It. Here, here's, the, here's the writer, the writing to the agony ant, all right? I'm a widow, and I've known a lovely man who's also widowed for six years. We don't live together, but see each other a few times a week. He sometimes likes to have sex, which I think should be for when you're married. But we love each other, so it happens. I'd like to marry him, but he thinks we're fine as we are. He says he likes his own way, and it would spoil things if we got married. Do you think this relationship is worth holding on to? I do miss him on the days when we don't see each other. Here's Anne's answer. I'm sorry you feel this relationship isn't right because he doesn't want to marry you. I think you'd be more unhappy if you ended it. Think how much you miss him when you're apart. Then she adds, I wonder if it's your religious beliefs that make it difficult. If so, why not ask your priest or vicar about such a relationship at your time of life? I'd be surprised if you were told it was wrong. Well, I think she'd be very surprised. If any priest or vicar who was approached by this lady referred to the only authoritative guide on this and many other matters, namely this book, the Bible. And she might be also very surprised, I think, to learn that the Bible actually deals in explicit detail with such a scenario. More importantly, it lays down principles which can be applied to any and other situation relating to the subjects of sex and Marriage. Now you'll find them in this letter written almost 2,000 years ago by a man named Paul. He writes it to a group of Christians living in a Greek city called Corinth. Now Corinth was famous or infamous for the sexual practices of its population. In fact, the Greeks coined a word in Greek to Corinthianize, which meant to practice sexual excess. Paul, a Christian preacher, had visited this city a few years ago and in such seemingly infertile soil, the seed of the gospel, the Christian good news message, had taken root and a community of Christians, or church to give it its proper name, had come into being. But they had all sorts of questions. 
living in that cultural environment. How was their newfound faith in Jesus to be worked out in their lifestyle in such a city as Corinth? One of their number, for example, was living with his father's wife. Was that okay? Most of the church seemed to think it was a great idea. Or not. They decided the best way to get answers to these and lots of other questions they had was to write to their founder, Paul. So they wrote a letter to him, kind of like writing to the agony ant, but not the agony ant, to Paul. And we don't have a copy of the letter that they wrote to him, but we do have his reply, which is preserved in this book, the Bible, and it comes under what is called 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul wrote another letter, which has also been preserved to the Corinthians, which, not surprisingly, is called 2 Corinthians. So, let's read what he said on the subject of marriage. I've called it Marriage Matters, for as we'll see, it's about matters concerning marriage, but it's a kind of plain words if you think about it. It also highlights the fact that marriage does matter. You'll find it then in 1 Corinthians 7, it's a long chapter, uh, but we need to read it through, try and follow what Paul is saying here, and then I'll try and explain it afterwards. It's page 1148 there in the church Bibles. It really will help to have the text in front of you, okay? Partly to follow what's being said and also to make sure that I'm covering what it's said faithfully, all right? And notice his opening words, now for the matters you wrote about, all right? They wrote about lots of other things other than marriage in this letter you'll come to later on probably. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, I say to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. It's better to marry than burn with passion. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this. I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation he was when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? 
Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not their own known to keep. <laughs> those who use the things of the world as if engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly towards the virgin he's engaged to, and if she's getting on in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man does the right thing also. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but even he, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord in my judgment. She's happier if she stays as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. Well, this is God's Word. So let's see what we can make of it with God's help. And I cannot go into depth on every detail. Uh, my predecessor, Derek Prime, is here. He's written an excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians. Good for you to get a copy and look at some of the uh, teaching here in more detail. Now, I'm going to turn the moment to what Paul says, the questions he answers. Uh, but before that, I want to look about Paul's credentials. Uh, if, for example, you're not sure if you should park outside Rose Street, you'd be better asking a traffic warden or a policeman because uh, they know what the law is. Only then can you be confident getting an authoritative answer. So first of all, let, let's look briefly at the authority Paul assumes as he's writing this letter. What are his credentials? And in this passage, in some other places, it sounds like when you read it, as though Paul is making a distinction between what the Lord Jesus says. Look at verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. But in verse 12, he refers to what he says, to what Paul says. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, think about it for a moment. Does this mean he is saying what he says to the marriage is binding, as it comes from the Lord Jesus, but what he says is kind of only his personal opinion, which they can take or leave? Although it may read like this, this is not what he actually means. Paul claims in all his letters that he's an apostle, called by God, sent by God, 
with authority to declare divine truth. But where he's dealing here with the specific issues relating to divorce and marriage, he distinguishes between those on which Jesus directly commented in his earthly ministry recorded in the Gospels and those about which he said nothing, situations that had not yet arisen, like what do you do about a believer who's married to an unbeliever? And in these cases, Paul gives his own judgment, but he claims to have the Spirit of God who inspires what he says, whether it is pastoral advice or apostolic command. And as such, what he writes has divine Spirit-inspired authority, which is why when we read the Bible, we regard Paul's letters on a par with the rest of Scripture as equally authoritative. This is actually quite important as an aside because some people say, well, of course, the New Testament wasn't written till later. So when Paul says, for example, in 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures inspired by God, he's obviously referring to the Old Testament, not his own writings. They carry lesser weight. However, if you read one of the last letters to be written in the New Testament, 2 Peter, we read that Paul's words still have divine authority. Listen to what he says. Very interesting. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That's reassuring, isn't it? Which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction significantly Paul takes care to distinguish between his teaching and that of Jesus and it gives the light to those who say the early church invented these sayings of Jesus to support their own teaching let alone that you have two gospels in the New Testament the gospel of Jesus which is nice and simple and then Paul came along complicated it all it's the same gospel the same Jesus the same message so that's the authority Paul possesses that's a kind of writer that gives us the authority to now look at what Paul says so stay with me, all right? Some of you are looking a little glazed already, so just ask God's help to stay alert. Okay. Now, not surprisingly, in this chapter, Paul focuses on the situations of those who are married and those who are single and, or unmarried. Therefore, this applies to almost, well, it applies to everybody here. You're either married or unmarried. You may have been divorced or whatever the case may be. And so God's word has something to say to each one of us. And even if the bit I say, like, for example, when we talk about marriage, you think, well, that, I can switch off here. I'm not married yet. No, stay with me, because maybe one day you will be married, and you need to keep it in mind, all right? Now, it, it seems clear there were contrasting opinions in this church in Corinth, this hotbed of sexuality, on sexual behavior. And people seem to have their popular slogans uh, summarizing their viewpoint, their kind of strap lines. In the previous section, in chapter 6, which I assume we looked at, verses 12 to 20, we saw one of these. Some of the people in the church went around with a placard saying, everything is permissible for me. And they used that as an excuse for sexual license. Click. Sorry. Thank you very much. Okay. Now in chapter 7... We see there are those in the church who hold the opposite extreme in regard to sexual activity. So Paul begins, now for the matters you wrote about, i.e. your slogan, read verse 1 again. Now for the matters you wrote about, your slogan, it is a good for a man not to marry. Or literally, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. These people, rather than pursuing what we can call hedonism, 
seeking for pleasure, satisfying the desires of the flesh as your ultimate goal. Other people devote themselves to what we call asceticism, suppressing all your bodily appetites and abstaining from fulfilling them. So their slogan was a reason for sexual abstinence. They believed in this way, if you were unencumbered by things like sexual activity and marriage and all those encumbrances to do with bodily desires and all that kind of thing, uh, you could be more spiritual. Interestingly, people still hold to one of those two extremes or somewhere along a continuum between them. And those who think this position about sexual abstinence, they are thinking, surely Paul will support our position. After all, he's just written, flee from sexual immorality, stressing how damaging sexual immorality is to one's spiritual health and highlighting the fact that the Christian's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit chapter 6 verse 19 to 20 and was not Paul himself committed to a celibate lifestyle surely they say Paul you'd be happy to carry one of our placards it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman and Paul talks here what is good then for a Christian what's good for a Christian good not in the sense of right and wrong but what's advisable is it marriage as John William read the passage from Genesis 2 verse 18 it's not good for a man to be alone or is it celibacy which Paul now practices what's the right opinion about this now we all need to know the answer to this don't we really and Paul's answer is it seems to me as you read it he steers a middle course here and he says It depends on the different circumstances in which you find yourself. It depends on your present circumstances. And he pictures, as it were, like we are in this church, all the varied circumstances represented by the people in Corinth or in any church. And you will notice, and we can only summarize this briefly, in each case he he states what is good and advisable, but in each case he makes an exception as well. That's why you need to stay with this and and focus clearly on what he says. So, let's look at these. I'm going to summarize them under four different categories, all right? For you'll find yourself either now or in the future in one of these categories. Four different situations. He's going to talk about those who are married, about those who are in a particular position of being married to an unbeliever. They've become Christians, but now their spouse is not a Christian, the husband or wife. He then talks about those who are widowed. What should they do? Should they get married again or stay single? And then he talks about what he calls virgins, which basically means those who are unmarried and haven't been married. Okay, let's focus first of all on the group which Paul deals with in the most detail, and we do. If you're listening carefully and thinking this is going to take a long time for point one, we're going to be here till midnight with points two, three, and four. We're going to spend more time on point one, all right? First of all, Christians who are married. This is in verses 2 to 7 and then 10 to 11. There's been a long hangover, which dates back probably to Augustine, still evident in some Christian circles, which sees sexuality as part of the fall. And so sex is viewed at worst as something dirty or demeaning, or at best a hindrance to the true spiritual life. But Paul, with the authority of the record in Genesis, sees sexual intimacy as part of God's good creation. We read about it pre-fall. Sex didn't happen after Adam and Eve sinned against God. God said it's not good for a man to be alone and that they should come together in intimacy, a spiritual union expressed in a physical union. This is God's gift of sexual intimacy within marriage. 
So sexual union is a gift of God, but it must only be expressed within the commitment of marriage. And he says two things about marriage here. It must be monogamous. Not what the child thought it was, monotonous, monogamous. Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Now, the reason Paul does not ma- mention gay marriage, he doesn't look around the congregation and say, and about those who are gay, is not because homosexuality was unknown in Corinth. It was widely practiced. In fact, some of the members had been involved in that lifestyle. But because the Bible assumes, by definition, that marriage involves a man and a woman. Right back to creation. It's not a matter of spot picking certain texts as people do in Leviticus. They're only supporting evidence. You go right back to the original creation as some wit said, in the beginning God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. So, such marriage is monogamous and secondly, it is lifelong. What he says in verse 39, a woman is bound to a husband as long as he lives and vice versa. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary, David Pryor writes, marriage, says Paul, is the gift and plan of God. Sex is the gift and plan of God. To reject both as if they were evil is as much a deviation from the will of God as to indulge in sexual intercourse outside marriage. And in the marriage relationship, Paul says husbands and wives have mutual obligations to each other. Not as rights which they demand from each other, but as duties which they owe to each other. It is mutual giving and equality. Look at verse 4. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Now, when he wrote that, when that was read out in church, when he read the first statement, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to the husband, all the men in the church would have probably shouted, Amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. When they read the second statement, in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife, there would have been gasps of astonishment at the radical nature of what Paul is saying here. In another commentary, Gordon Fee, which is a much more detailed commentary really on the Greek text, um, he he writes this, Too many still see sex as though it were the privilege of the husband and the duty of the wife, but not so. It is the privilege and duty of both together. Each belongs mutually to the other. In sexual intercourse, as nowhere else, husbands and wives express their unity and mutuality. So, rather than abstaining from sexual relationships with each other, as though this was somehow super spiritual, a husband and wife should engage in them as an act of giving to each other rather than taking from each other. Now, there are provisos here. Paul Barnett, who's an Australian Anglican bishop, was a... Is he still alive yet? he says this listen nonetheless each partner needs to be sensitive to those seasons of life when having one's own needs met is not easy for the other where partners find difficulties in their sexual expression it should be a matter for loving discussion and tender understanding between them perhaps with medical help sought but the main point he's saying here is that this this is an essential biblical part of the married relationship we worship at Nidri now and uh, Mes McConnell focused on 1 Corinthians 7 some time ago in the sermon and came out with one of Mes's memorable phrases, which you'll never forget when you've heard it. He said, if you're married, what Paul is saying here, make sure you're busy in the bedroom. Well, <clears throat> that is a mess statement, but essentially what he's saying is right. So for married couples, 
sexual intimacy is the norm. But Paul makes one exception. He says, abstinence in order to devote yourself to prayer. He says, there are special occasions, that's the meaning of the word time in verse 5, when a Christian couple might choose to devote themselves to prayer, and just as fasting, abstaining from food, may be a help to focus on seeking and communing with God, so abstinence from sex may likewise be helpful. But there are two provisos, says Paul, to this. It must be my mutual consent. The husband and wife must be in agreement, in literally in Greek, symphony. And for a limited duration. If abstinence from sexual relations becomes the norm, then it will likewise make a person vulnerable to temptation by the tempter Satan through lack of self-control. He says, or you will be vulnerable to Satan's temptation. Now, I don't want to go into detail, but simply speaking as a pastor, I think any pastor would reinforce that that is the case. However, there appear to be those married Christians in the church in Corinth who not only regarded sex as unspiritual, they then regarded divorce or separation. And the word divorce and separate are used interchangeably because there was no distinction between them in the ancient world. And they thought the best way was to get rid of their partners. And Paul unambiguously states they should not separate and says, my authority for this comes, this command comes from the Lord Jesus. No divorce based on what the Lord Jesus said. Now, Several questions have been raised about this. Which command does he refer to and where does he get it from? 1 Corinthians, you probably don't realize this, but 1 Corinthians was probably the first piece of literature that we have in our New Testament that was actually committed to writing. The, the written Gospels probably came later, but they were preserved in oral tradition and in fragments of documents until the Gospel writers in God's providence brought them together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the reference is probably to what Jesus said, which is recorded in Mark 10, in which Jesus took an absolute position on divorce, contrary to that of current Jewish liberal practice. Worth looking at it. Uh, Mark 10, 11, and 12. Jesus answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. In his gospel, Matthew records, Matthew 19, verse 9, an exception to this, he said, the only exception is in the case of the little Greek word is pornea, which is the same word here for sexual immorality. And many have asked, why doesn't Paul refer to this here? Well, it's not the focus of what he's saying. Here, his ruling, backed by the teaching of Jesus, is that a Christian should not divorce a Christian spouse. However, again, he says, looking at the reality of the situation... There is an exception. He recognizes there may be reasons where this becomes inevitable and it actually happens. And I speak with sensitivity. Any pastor has spent a lot of time talking to people who have been through this process and it is very painful. He says in this case, a wife must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. If you do separate, verse 11, no marriage, only reconciliation. Now many would say this is too strong and hard to enforce pastorally. And you need to look at it in parallel with the passage in Matthew it's a complex issue nonetheless <clears throat> it issues a salutary warning to Christians contemplating marriage and those contemplating divorce in an age of increasingly quicker and easier divorces for a Christian let me simply say it should be the slowest and last option when all else has failed now 
That's marriage in general. All right, much quicker we come to the next three situations. What about Christians who are married to unbelievers? Imagine you've, in Corinth, you've heard Paul preaching, you respond to the gospel, uh, but your spouse does not and has no interest in responding at the moment to the gospel. Then what should you do? Paul says again, here's the general principle, stay married if at all possible. <clears throat> There seemed to be some kind of belief that if you were a Christian who was married to an unbeliever, this would somehow defile you, you know, and spoil your, spoil your spiritual life. In fact, Paul says just the opposite. He says, stay married for the sake of the unbelieving spouse who is sanctified. We'll look at the words in a minute. And for the sake of the children who are holy. Paul writes, the unbelieving partner is sanctified by the believing spouse. Their children are holy. Now, what does he mean by this? It cannot mean that they become Christians. You know, as though automatically if you, if you become a Christian and you're married to somebody who isn't a Christian, then, then the day that you respond to the gospel, they automatically are brought into the kingdom because he talks about them possibly being saved later on in this passage. Whatever it means, the general thrust is clear. It, your relationship in that, the relationship of a believer to an unbeliever has positive benefits for the unbeliever. William Barclay, who... It's good on this kind of thing, not on everything by any means, but anyway, says, in a partnership with a believer and an unbeliever, it is not so much that the believer is brought into contact with the realm of sin as that the unbeliever is brought into contact with the realm of grace. Let me say it again, and that's quite helpful. In a partnership with a believer and an unbeliever, it is not so much the believer is brought into contact with the realm of sin as that the unbeliever is brought into contact with the realm of grace. So because this is the case, he says, if at all possible, stay married. Even though it may be difficult, stay married. Don't take the initiative in seeking divorce. However, again, he says there is an exception. If the unbelieving partner, despite all your efforts, wants to leave, then he or she should be allowed to do so. Interesting, isn't it? Those, again, I took pastorally, uh, those who've had experience where one person becomes a Christian and the other, the spouse, the husband or wife is not a Christian. It changes the whole dynamics of the relationship. Think of a man in, not in this church, in a previous church, and Nietzsche and I were talking to him and he, his wife had become a committed Christian. And he said, he said, it was very interesting, he said, it's like another man has come into our relationship who she loves more than me. In a sense, he was right. Not a man, but the Lord... And he said, I just feel threatened by the whole thing. And we need to think sensitively through that with people. So the Christian married to an unbeliever should stay married unless the unbelieving spouse wants to do so. And Paul says, if they do, then finally, maybe sadly, you let them do so. Sadly, some choose to leave. And in these circumstances, all else having failed, the Christian partner should allow them to do so for the sake of peace. God has called us to peace, writes Paul in verse 15, rather than acrimonious relationships. In this case, if the unbelieving partner walks away, a believing man or woman, he says, is not bound in these circumstances. What does not bound mean? We're getting some really tricky issues here. And uh, uh, Paul will give you all the answers later if uh, I get all this wrong. But... Uh, does not bound mean free to remarry? Christians and churches disagree on this point. It seems to me more likely to mean free to remarry, especially if the unbelieving spouse walks away and unites in a sexual relationship with someone else. 
The fact that Paul does not, as with the case of Christian partners who divorce, state that marriages, remarriage is not allowed inclines uh, towards that view. So there's a second category, Christians who are married to unbelievers. And in the middle of this, and again at the end of the chapter, Paul talks about a third category, Christians who are widowed. If you look at verse 8, he says, Now I say to the unmarried and to the widows, probably the word unmarried there should be translated widowers. Because there was a Greek word for widowers, but it's very rarely used. And it's used in parallel to the widowers and the widows, I say. And his advice, which follows, may suggest, it may suggest many people believe that Paul had been married. Certainly if he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, he would have to have been married. And maybe he was divorced or maybe his wife had died. We don't know. But he says... Stay unmarried, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. However, as he has already conceded, God has not given everyone the gift of self-control. And so again, after giving his advice, he makes an exception, unless you lack self-control. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The words with passion are added by the translators here of the NIV, understanding that it means burn with lust. Already in verse 2 we read that marriage is one God-given means of avoiding the rampant sexual immorality in a place like Corinth 2,000 years ago and like Edinburgh today. Uh, the 1662 Anglican prayer book gives it as one of the three reasons God ordained marriage, in rather quaint words, as a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. It's practical, isn't it? It's the third reason. But Paul's advice, in particular to widows, is reiterated in the final two verses of the chapter and adds a proviso. If you do marry, you should only remarry an un a believer. Say it carefully. Only remarry a believer. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Again, in my experience, marrying an unbeliever is fraught with problems. Because once the heat of the relationship has died away, if you're a committed Christian, where Jesus is at the heart of everything you are and stand for, will lead inevitably to conflict of loyalties and difficulties. And that's why I, certainly as a pastor over the years, have steadfastly refused to marry Christians and non-Christians. At some cost, but I believe it's the only right step to take. That only leaves one more group of people, Christians, were single. And again, he makes a general ruling, but he adds an exception. He says, if you are not married, then stay single, stay as you are. And then he gives a specific intriguing reason. He says, verse 26, because of the present crisis. Now, again, we don't know what he's talking about. What present crisis is he talking about? He's talking, it seems, about some particular situation where a crisis in Corinth or in the world in general some people think he's talking about a, a view that Christ is about to return any moment I don't think that's necessarily the case here but he's talking about some particular situation that means the NIV study Bible says it probably means that his recommendation does not apply to all times and all situations he's writing about a particular situation we're unaware of what does apply is the principle, he states, stay unmarried so you can devote yourselves fully to the Lord's affairs. But again, this is not a binding rule for everyone. So Paul writes, 
but do what you feel you ought to do, what's right for you. He's not making a binding rule here. If you decide to get married, he says, in these circumstances, you are not sinning, and you're not a second-rate Christian because you couldn't keep up to the standard of being single and celibate. These, then, are the four situations Paul addresses. Actually, doing quite well. Uh, coming to my third point. So we've looked at the authority, Paul assumes, and the situation he addresses. But what I want to look at in conclusion, which is really important, is what are the principles that Paul applies when he's talking about these things? He's not, he's not just making a case book and loads of rules and regulations. In fact, every time he says something, he says, however, there again, in these circumstances. It's very encouraging, I think. You know, the Bible is not a rule book like that. It establishes certain principles. And I want to say there are two principles that you see that Paul uses here which he holds in tension and we need to hold in tension. All right? First of all, the reality of human nature. See, the Bible is realistic about human nature and about fallen human nature, about the reality of temptation, our propensity to yield to it, especially but not exclusively in the sexual arena where a person can burn with desire. So rather than regarding sexual desire as something sinful, it faces up to it and places it in its proper context within marriage. And it says marriage in those circumstances is not a second-rate choice for Christians who are not as committed to Christ as those who are single and celibate. It is God's will and plan for many, if not most people. It's very interesting, isn't it? I I grew up in a lovely little evangelical church. And the word S-E-X was never, ever mentioned in the 20 years when I was growing up in that church because it wasn't proper. You never talked about these things. In fact, some of us grew up in churches where there was certain passage of Scripture of which this was one which were described as not suitable for the public reading of Scripture. In other words, we don't talk about this publicly. It's just for your private consumption. And some of you, I know from, I can say my generation and older probably a bit embarrassed about some of the things we've talked about and what Paul writes here. But the Bible is very realistic. I'm just encouraged by that. It's not some sort of super spiritual spirituality in the sky and don't even talk about such things. It's realistic. It's realistic about our struggles. I I think all people, but well, all right, let me make a generalization. Most people struggle in the sexual arena, whether you're married or not. Let's be honest about it. And the Bible is honest and realistic about it. But it offers us a remedy. And so that's the first thing I want to say that you need to hold into tension. But the second thing Paul talks about is what, he call, what I want to call the priority of what he calls God's call. You see, what Paul is essentially saying is, our lives are not determined by our personal situation, or our marital status, or our sexual fulfillment. Our fulfillment is not determined by sex or lack of it, but by God's call. We belong to Christ. And so our priority, says Paul, is to serve him in whatever situation we find ourselves. He states it three times in this middle section in chapter verses 17 to 24. Nevertheless, he says, each one should retain the place that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him, verse 17. Verse 20, each one should remain in the situation he was when God called him. Verse 24, brothers, each man is respo- as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. The primary change in your life when you become a Christian is in your relationship with God, not with other people. Or your situation, 
or circumstances. And as one writer puts it, so don't be in a hurry to change the external circumstance of your life simply because you have become a Christian. And Paul gives examples from other situations. He says, if you're a Jew, if a man was a Jew before he became a Christian, he should not, as some were trying to do to find acceptance in the dominant Greek culture, try to surgically reverse his circumcision. Or if he's a Gentile, should get circumcised in order to fit in with Jewish culture. Or if he's a slave, he says, while your preference should be to get free, if at all possible, that's not your priority. Your priority is God's call on your life. This is the only thing that ultimately matters. For, writes Paul, the world in its present form, including marriage, is passing away. Now all this debate, and I'm not going to deal with it in any detail, but all this debate about gay marriage and all this kind of thing, the kind of assumption is that sex is the only thing that really matters. And that relationships with other people are all that matters. And I have to tell you, there's a greater relationship that's far more important, your relationship with God, under which all your other relationships are subsumed. You see, some of you are single. Let me say this. Even if you marry the most wonderful spouse in the world, and I speak from experience as one who is married to her, <laughs> she can never provide the ultimate fulfillment that only God can, or he can. And if you put him or her in that place, the Bible calls that idolatry. Because you're asking him to do something that only God can do, to be your ultimate fulfillment. That's the priority. So whatever situation you're in, in terms of your marital status, what really counts is God's call and your relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian here this evening, simply say to you, looking for fulfillment. You see, the closest thing to God-given fulfillment are relationships with other people. That's why the Bible uses the word know in Hebrew and in Greek to express that deepest intimacy. But it uses it of knowing God as well. Because our ultimate fulfillment is knowing God. As Jesus said in John 17, he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You will only find fulfillment in that. Not in a relationship with anybody else. Because when you find that, when let me put it this way, when, when Christ is at the center, your lives orbit around him, then all your other relationships orbit in their proper orbit. That's not very well written, said, but you see what I mean. If you put that person at the center, your orbit will go all over the place. There's a word for it, elliptical, I think. And some of our lives are like that. They're all over the place. Because our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate fulfillment, we're trying to find it in the wrong person in the wrong relationship that is the priority and once that is the case once you accept that God's call is the most important thing everything else falls into its proper perspective Gordon Fee concludes his commentary on this section helpfully he says providing precisely because our lives are determined by God's call not by our situation we need to continue there as those who are before God he says Paul's concern is not with change one way or the other, but living out one's calling in whatever situation one is found. We should be, whatever situation you are in now, on this subject of marriage, be content where God has placed you until and unless he calls you to something else. 
The question is for each one of us, are we content in the situation where God has placed us? Now, I don't speak as though all of us live these most wonderful lives and circumstances. Some of us live in difficult relationships. Some of us have struggled with different relationships in the past. And they're painful even to talk about it this evening. It raises all sorts of things in your mind. I'm not minimizing that. But I'm simply saying, make your relationship with the Lord your priority. Jesus put it, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Is that your priority? That's really the challenge of this passage. It's about marriage, but it's really about the most important relationship of all. In simple terms, I'll leave you with an image. The call to the Christian is to bloom where you are planted. And it may be in concrete, in tough situations. But God can help you when you make him your priority. So let's pray and then we'll sing.